probably 15 or 20 feet from the end, it kind of landed on a stump and whipped in a certain way that the short end, the, the stump end of the log that he just cut off kicked back and came sideways and hit him in the knee and he had a compound fracture right at the top of his cork boot. Boom, broke his leg hard and one or two of the bones in his shin were sticking out right at the top of the boot. And man, he was hurt. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I've got my dad here, the Essential Craftsman. How are you doing? Hi, guys. I'm doing good. We're doing a voicemail discussion today. We've got a handful of really good questions. If you want to submit a question for us to answer, you can do that on our website at EssentialCraftsman.com slash podcast. Let's jump right in. Hi, Essential Craftsman team. Uh, my name's Callum. I'm a carpenter and joiner in Scotland. And after working for a company for about seven years as that, I've recently started up my own business uh, just in January there. And already I've had trouble getting payments out of two clients, not through to quality of work, but more the clients trying to haggle prices after the fact and after agreements were made. Is that something you can speak to and any advice um, on how to deal with that without ruining uh, relationships or reputation? Okay, so that, first of all, I am partially Scottish. My maternal great-grandmother, my paternal great-grandmother was Elizabeth MacGregor, and she came from Calgary, Canada, and I have so learned, so that, so that's, I mean, it's you too, mm -hmm. right, that... Uh, I've learned that there was essentially a genocide declared on the McGregor clan way back when by the Crown, and they were run out. A lot of them emigrated to Canada where they could stay alive. And so I love your brogue, man. I love the way that Scottish brogue, it, I mean, it resonates. So, And I love the name, Callum. It is hard to recover from non-payment. So the whole idea of, ha of entering into an agreement and getting a contract and getting your deposits and getting to the end and then have somebody not want to pay you the full price even though you did good work, that just indicates a character flaw in that person that you have to learn to recognize before you sign the agreement. But you just started as a contractor in January, so you haven't learned that yet. And maybe some of these people are family or friends, and, and that speaks to your concern about relationships and reputation. So the impossible but best way through that when, when those people come along and that happens is to give away what you can give away and then take their name out of your contact list and never work for them again. But the real answer is, is spend some time vetting those clients. Do, the reason big construction companies succeed is because they have credit departments. They thoroughly vet and do a credit history um, research project on anyone they give a price to because when you give them a price you're committing to a contract and you're going to be held to that and you're expecting the other party to hold to it also but if they have a reputation for slow pay or non-payment it doesn't matter how great that job looks you got to run away how do you do that as a new car contractor when you just desperately need work i can't answer that but the concept is right the other th there's a couple other things you've got to learn right away that 80% of your trouble as a general contractor will come from 20% of your clients. And so you need to identify that 20% early and cross them off your list. Refer them to a competitor that you do not think highly of and let your 20% be his problem. And you have to handle your deposits so that by the end of the job, they're not ahead of you. So if they completely flake on the, on the, uh, 
on the retainer for some reason. At least you've satisfied your costs. Um, there was another point which I've forgotten. Nate, what have you got to what do you got to tell him about this? Um, first thought was when I is you're worried about someone ruining their reputation, and certainly these people are doing that. Yeah, <laughs> first and foremost. So, um, someone's reputation is getting ruined when this happens. That's right. And secondly, when I've hired contractors, very often they'll ask for a big, not a down payment, but a payment towards the thing uh, as much as half of the whole cost of the job and on a big job like that big block fence i did i think i gave the guy like 20 or thirty thousand dollars. i had met him a week before i did as much homework as i could but hopefully you're doing that because if the person is not willing to give you x amount of dollars you know right off the bat or they're they're worried about that then that might be a red flag that they are going to give you trouble later on also and that's them extending some trust and if they're worried about that that's fair but that, that could be a, a slight indicator that the person doesn't like handing money over. So it seems like most good contractors I've worked with are collecting money right off the bat before they give up any time, labor, materials, anything like that. And, and the way you defend that, so because there are crooked contractors that will take big deposits and disappear. But the way you defend that asking for money before you've done work is to let them know that you have to buy material. And once that material is committed and used on their job, the money cannot be retrieved. And so maybe the, maybe their deposit is made out to you and the, the uh, vendor or the supplier. Maybe you find some other way. Maybe you do the demolition first without getting a deposit. And as soon as a demolition is done and material is ordered, wham, you get a big chunk of money. The takeaway is you have to understand the people better somehow so that you're not surprised at the end by this um, disreputable behavior that they're bringing to the table. And the other thing is I would tell every young contractor you have to stop thinking about the value of your work in terms of what you would be willing to pay because that has no bearing on what you should be willing to charge. What that means is you have to raise your prices because if you do not if you do not receive enough money for your work to pay your overhead and some amount of profit, in a very short period of time, you will have starved out. You'll be working for somebody else that's treating you poorly, and those people won't be able to call you back for your next for the next project that they want you to do for them because you won't be in business. So raise your prices, understand your clients better, get a de- set up a deposit schedule so that you're covered in case they get killed in an f- accident on the freeway or who knows what. You don't want to be hung out because of their misfortune. And if they're a if they're a bad client, send them to a bad contractor. Yeah, solving this is more challenging, and maybe the the difference maker between contractors who survive and contractors who don't. So you, it seems like you're correctly identifying the challenging or the mysterious part of being a contractor. And when you look at a business who's been open for 40, 50 years, that's an individual who's figured this out. Right. So. If you can figure it out, that'll put you ahead of other contractors starting up. And it's not easy. And I'm uh, glad I never had to do it. Great question. Hello, Essential Craftsman. My name's Gabe up here in Corvallis, Oregon. Love the show. I can't help but notice all those gorgeous plants behind the spec house. And so my question has two parts. One, what's your general philosophy of landscaping in a house? And what are you planning to do on this spec house for landscaping? And then I guess 
a side question is I saw that you tilled up a bunch of your ground at your house to plant a vegetable garden. And I was wondering what you do with that. Thanks so much for your time and keep up the good work. Thank you, Gabe. So, so first of all, Nate's oldest, older sister and her husband and kids, my daughter, Amanda live in Corvallis. Kelly and I were up there last night. So I'm, and I went to school there for a short period of time at Oregon state. So we have some roots in Corvallis. So Nate is much more qualified to speak to landscaping than I am. I have spent my life mostly just building things and letting my so ambitious bride, Kelly handle the landscaping at home. Nothing annoys her worse than an impudent tree. And that's why I do not ever let her handle a chainsaw. She would, as I have remarked earlier, clear cut any property we had that she thought the plants were had attitudes. But she is good at that. Before I before I tend this send this back over to Nate and he can talk about the way he learned to cultivate cactus and stuff in Arizona, the vegetable garden has long been overwhelmingly dedicated to tomatoes. We have scaled it back to 42 tomato plants this year. And that's a lot of tomatoes, right? But we eat a lot of tomatoes and we juice a lot of tomatoes and we can them and we eat and eat and eat and give away tomatoes. So tomatoes are great. We've planted corn. The variety this year is bodacious. We have potatoes, red, yellow, and purple. We have some peppers. We have some cruciferous vegetables that are just about done and we pulled out and replaced with something else. Kelly's planted some basil, and she has some rosemary, and she has some catnip. Um, she has uh, some kale, which in my humble opinion is a useless vegetable. And, but tomatoes are it. We love tomatoes, and we're gradually figuring out how to raise them. Talk to us about landscaping. Okay. Well, in terms of philosophy on landscaping, I've never thought of it that way, but certainly I guess I guess there is one, or, or they exist. Probably. Um so what I personally like, if it might be a better way for me to answer that, I love when there's the same plant over and over in a yard or, or a, a property instead of just like a variety. Some, it's easy when you walk into a nursery to kind of want to get one of everything and then you have variety and you're thinking, well, that way lots of times during the year, something else might be in bloom and I'll have all these neat different shades and colors. And that is nice. And there's something to be said for that. I personally prefer, however, when it's multiple, the same plant in a row, it just seems kind of more, I guess, simpler. And I've, I've seen it done really well. So not that that's the only plant on the property, but just, I think that way, how, how can I put multiple of the same plant in a row or in a line? It looks very intentional and can be neat. I like when trees are on the edge of the property. So instead of planting a tree in the center of a yard, as is done a lot of times, I think it makes a lot more sense to put the trees on the edge of the yard away from the house. It kind of boxes in the yard and frames the yard in a nice way. And you don't have to deal with mowing and trimming around that tree out of the grass and little uh, tree rings and all that nonsense. And especially if you can kind of get them in several places around, you can really just almost fence in a property in a really neat way. So I love trees on the edge. Um, Homes and properties are rarely symmetrical, so I don't even consider trying to get symmetry in landscaping. And oftentimes I'll look for asymmetry. So if there's a, a width of a planter box on one side of a walk, I don't think automatically that it has to be the same side size 
on the other side of the walk, maybe the the asymmetry between the the width of the planters with two different plants could could really work well there. Um you know, local plant <laughs> tried and true plants, plants that have proven themselves to do well and and are favorites for areas make a lot of sense in in southern Oregon here you see palm trees occasionally but they're always just kind of wimpy and barely hanging on and, and they look kind of sad next to the, the really strong local boys. And so I don't do that. I, you know, in Arizona, cactuses and desert plants do great. And so it makes sense to stick with those. And I don't think you have to be overly creative in order to make a beautiful yard and have plants that no one has seen before. You can, you can use the classics, you know, classics never go out of style. Um, that's all about all I could think of. I, I saw there's a landscaper or a contractor in Arizona named Bill Tonneson who I stumbled in. I stumbled into one of his properties because I was buying a couch from one of his tenants, like a Craigslist deal. And the yard was so beautiful. And I remember asking the tenant, what's going on with this yard? I've never seen this before. He said his landlord was really into it. So found him online and I'll link to the guy's website. But basically, I'm just like ripping off and emulating everything I've seen this fellow do because it's really beautiful. He's a little more modern and does some pretty abstract things with statues and and very artistic hardscaping things that are a few steps beyond what I'm talking about. But in general, I'm kind of emulating what I saw Bill Tonneson do, which is, like I mentioned, same plants in a row, kind of simple, those types of things. So those are my, that's my opinion. So you guys are going to get a look soon at Ken Jordan's gardens and his approach to landscaping. Yeah, there's another approach. Yeah, yeah an, another approach. Um, conifer gardens. Ken is the guy on the channel that sits in a chair and smokes a pipe. You're going to learn a lot more about Ken, and you probably, like me, will never think of craftsmanship in quite the same way after you've seen what he's done. Mm -hmm. But part of the story, which we probably, I, I don't know how thoroughly we'll deal with it in the video, but after he built this absolutely phenomenal green and green style home phenomenal it is the most well-rendered example of green and green architecture north of berkeley california and i would have no problem defending that to anyone who objected after he he got the house about 95 percent done he turned his attention to conifer gardens around on his property conifers and japanese maples and stone walls and hedges and uh he has hundreds of um, examples, cultivars, as I have learned from him, they are called, in these two broad general categories of plants. And before his stroke, he knew the formal and informal names of all of them. He's done bonsai. He has a maple tree there that's 35 feet tall and a tree of the same species planted on the same day that is about 16 inches tall. He's just so it's a different, different, radically different approach. But it's yeah. not me. So, so Gabe, um, I'm sorry that I don't have more information. But for me, my idea of landscaping is putting 40 or 50 tomato plants in a nicely laid out grid in the middle of a piece of fertile soil right in the front yard. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't have a philosophy on landscaping without thinking about what the point of it is. Is it low? Do you want low maintenance? Do you want something that you like, or do you want like Ken, he he was really into. I'm guessing the just the science and species yes. and almost the geography of his mm -hmm. garden. And so, I don't know. I I guess you gotta you gotta do whatever you like. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Hello, Scott and Nate. I'm Charlie from Scottsdale, Arizona, and I myself am considering 
going into a trade and was wondering if you guys had to pick one to start a career in, which one would you choose? I love the content on both channels and keep up the good work, guys. Thanks. Okay, Charlie. I have I have a knee-jerk answer, but before it's an oversimplification, no doubt. So first of all, I think you need to kind of understand yourself. You need to understand what you're drawn to and what you like to look at and what holds your attention in the trades. I mean, if you have sort of an inclination, you probably should be thinking about using weighting your decision based on what you're drawn to. But if that's not clear, become an electrician, man, um, because there are... There are formal benchmark standards in almost anywhere you go associated with being an electrician that enable you to step into areas of responsibility and employment at the residential or commercial or industrial level. You are automatically distanced from the millions of other guys your same age who would be competing for whatever niche you were going into by that specific technical know-how. It's one of the handiest things you can know at home. I mean, you can keep your house from burning down. You can solve problems for all of your friends and neighbors. It's an eminently tradable and barterable um, skill. It doesn't require all the tools in the world. I mean, a journeyman electrician works pretty much with his bags, and they don't weigh much. You know, yeah. small tools. You're um, upright very often. You're upright. Your you're ladder. I mean, yeah, you're upright. You, now, if you're playing afraid of electricity, okay, that's a problem. But it's most of the time it's clean or cleanish. Yeah. You're seldom lifting anything heavy unless you're pulling a, a, a line through a conduit. It's just so if I was going to pick one, and maybe maybe this is because I have always been sort of intimidated and unable to really wrap my head around electricity really effectively, and so I think, wow, that would be a thing to learn. But if you do go into electrical, learn all you can about the low voltage stuff too, because that is going to continue to dominate in the res it's going to dominate everywhere. Learn everything you can about low voltage along with the high voltage. That's my yeah, answer. I think that's right. I thought about this question a lot and it's tough. It's there's no one answer. It's really tough. There's so many great trades for so many different great reasons. If you are interested in owning a business and, 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 and having employees, that's a different. That's going to be a different answer than if you want to work with your hands and you don't want to have to have that kind of drama and you would rather have a steady paycheck. So, it's it's a tough answer. Being an electrician is a great a great route though. Um, can't go wrong with that. No matter what, you got to do something where you have to learn something. Like being an electrician, where you really have to educate yourself. Otherwise, you'll be competing with anybody who can just pick up the the basic materials and tools at Home Depot. So. So definitely you want to differentiate yourself. And as another example of that, like uh, HVAC repair or something like that, you know, where you're, where you're kind of inside of a, of a machine or something that you kind of don't, that not everybody wants to dive into without some training. So make yeah. sure there's training involved. Yeah. And so, so one more thing with electric, it's kind of like doctors, right? I mean, I, I've heard guys who go into podiatry because there, there's almost never an emergency. Yeah. If you're on call, okay, it's not a big deal unless you have you're at a you know if you're on call at a hospital too. But they wanted to control their schedule, and if you're a plumber, man, you might get called Christmas Eve for a problem that's wrecking somebody's whole holiday. Yeah. But usually that doesn't happen with an electrician. Predictable yeah. hours, predictable environment. Yeah. Good question, Charlie, and 
good luck with that and let us know what you do. There's so many great ones. It's it's um there's no one right answer there, of course. I uh essential craftsman, this is a question for you. More of a question slash comment. Uh this is Hootie speaking into the speak pipe from Pennsylvania. I worked for five years at a job where my uh boss or the business owner uh, lost his temper on the regular. And this is a response to the question you were asked about losing your temper on the job site. I worked for five years in a carpentry environment. I fell in love with it immediately. <clears throat> but uh, uh, it got to the point where I was being yelled at for things that I was doing the right way. And that's when I decided to quit and things kind of fell apart for a little while. And then I switched jobs and now I work as a recycling sorting specialist and uh, doing cutting torch work. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Thank you. Hootie, thanks for the question. Um, I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to assume you're in your late 20s, maybe early mid 20s. So first of all, I'm sorry that you had to work for a two-year-old, man. Anybody who has responsibility in construction who can't, who's yelling all the time for no good reason, even when you do something right, um, you probably should have quit him after the first three months. You know what I mean. I mean, you can't. You're trying to get an education. You're working. You like carpentry. I'm just sorry you ran into one of those bozos. Um but you got us. So I'm going to assume now. So my brother-in-law Jack Trowbridge has been a very successful guy here in Roseburg, and for a long time, he he was in the um, scrap business. He and a partner or two, and now he's primarily metal fabrication. He makes the trailers, like the Great Northern trailer that I pull around, and he makes big stuff. But I I have watched a lot of people in his um, scrapyard working, good men, who end up in a job running a big, long cutting torch, a torch with about a three-foot um, stem on it so they can stand upright and cut apart scrap down at their foot level. You can't. If you are someone who's drawn to carpentry and you are understanding it and you can, you can visualize a process and, and you can work at height and you can cut length and you can read a tape measure and you can interpret plans more or less, you've got to get out of that like yesterday because from now on in the United States... Everything from the neck down, Hootie, is minimum wage. It's minimum wage if what you're doing is only done using that which exists below your chin. You have to get somewhere where you're using your head, and carpentry is a pretty good spot for that. So don't get comfortable there, even if nobody's badgering you, and find somebody who will teach you something, will appreciate good work, will bust your chops when you mess up, and then will just keep keep giving you a chance to become a carpenter or something don't don't settle in where you're at that's not the spot for you hi gentlemen mark here from tucson enjoy both your channels and i'm slowly hammering my way through the blacksmith course when i find the time my question is several episodes ago in ec2 you talked about not wanting to dip your saw into the dorner tree pronounce that right and i didn't know what that was so I did some investigation and found out about that tree, but I could not find a reference for the name Dorner. Is that a person, place, or thing? What is the origin of that name? Thank you. Okay, Mark. First of all, thank you for thank you for trusting us and taking that blacksmith course. I hope that I hope it's working out for you. 
and uh, I'll, be, I'll be anxious to get your feedback on once you dive back into it on kind of the layout of the course. And good luck blacksmithing in Tucson. I mean, I know what it's like blacksmithing in uh, Roseburg, Oregon in July and in August in front of a propane forge. So, yeah, be careful. The Dorner fir, it is a wonderful specimen of my, uh, well, Douglas fir is a fabulous species. And this is over in the, in Coos County, just about probably, what, 70 miles southeast of where we're sitting right now. I am assuming that the Dorner fir is named after a family by the last name of Dorner because there is a road here in Douglas County probably five miles from where we're sitting, that ties into the Coos Bay Wagon Road, which goes over into the neighborhood of the Dorner Fir over in that county, that's named after a local family, homesteading family, I think. Look, I'll try to do a little a little checking, maybe go down to the Douglas County Museum. They have a lot to say about the pioneer families around here and see if the Dorners, after whom Dorner Road is named in Douglas County, are related or perhaps are the same people that the Dorner Fir is named after in Coos County. It's kind of cool when trees get big and famous enough that they get their own name. Yeah. Isn't General Sherman a tree in California? Yeah. yeah. Yes, he is. And I don't think you can, they've stopped identifying those really big yeah. bad boys because people walk around them and compacting the soil kills them. Yeah. So they've avoided that. But it, the, what I just read, a little bit of research that Google provided for me 20 minutes ago is that the Dorner tree is now two feet shorter than it was 10 years ago because the tops on old growth trees die out. And so it's gradually, you know, the, the pointy top on a, on a second growth, a young fir tree dies. The big old trees are kind of flat and bushy on the top. And as they die down from the top, he's, get, he's getting shorter. Oh, so. so do they just grow in width and like get leafier? Or how, how the, do they? They don't grow much when they get that old. They grow oh. so, well, I say not much. The diameter is so big that they're yeah. putting on wood. But, oh. it, but it's such a small amount because of the, the oh, distance yeah. around the circumference. Yeah, okay. So, but they don't grow up anymore, really. Wow. They're just... Make it, they get up. shorter at some yeah. point. Yeah, because for trees, at least fir trees, add to their height from the top. Yeah. You know, the wood at the, at the stump stays at the stump, and they just right. add on at the top. That's pretty neat. Hey, this is Jack Ferguson from Aylet, Virginia. Uh, I had a question for Scott. Uh, what would be the biggest injury in cutting timber or on the job site building houses that has ever happened around where you're working or to you, and how is it handled? Okay, great question. I think your name was Jack, um, and you're working the brush too, so you know what, you probably have an idea what injuries look like or feel like. So I have been blessed and protected, I will assert, because I've witnessed it and I believe it. I've only had some cracked ribs or broken ribs one time. A truss kind of fell and I fell with it and I got tangled up and I hurt my ribs. You know, I've smashed toe, I've broken a toe, smashed fingers, no big deal. Not worth mentioning. Um, a few stitches, so what? The two worst injuries that I've been around, I, was, I pulled my sawmill when I was a kid. At that point, 20, I don't know, not very old, 21, up the North Umpqua River to a place that had some trees that I was buying to saw into cross arms. And we'll talk more about that later. But when I pulled up, the logger was nowhere to be found, but the cat, the bulldozer, was running. I could hear the bulldozer running, but I 
walked around and I got up to the side of the hill a little bit and I was yelling and I heard somebody yell back. And it was a father-son duo, Mark and Neil Talcott. And Mark was probably 24 then and Neil was probably in his early 60s. And when I got to where they were, Neil was crouched down on the ground kind of supporting Mark's leg because Mark had cut down a little fir tree, you know, maybe a 14-inch stump, big tall whip. And as it went down, it landed... The end of it, well, about probably 15 or 20 feet from the end, it kind of landed on a stump and whipped in a certain way that the short end, the, the stump end of the log that he just cut off kicked back and came sideways and hit him in the knee, and he had a compound fracture right at the top of his cork boot. Boom, broke his leg hard, and one or two of the bones in his shin were sticking out right at the top of the boot. And, Jeez. man, he was hurt. He was just hurt, wow. you know. And to his credit, I don't think he was crying. But he was not quiet. You know, he was hurting. And somehow or another, they had already gotten a call down to the Glide Volunteer Fire Department, and apparently there was an ambulance on the way, and I didn't know what to do. And so I was just kind of standing by, and I heard the ambulance miss the road. So I went down and directed, and they got up there, and they put some sort of an inflatable cast around his leg and pumped it up to immobilize it. Then they could get him on the stretcher, and out he went. So that was that was the worst logging accident I've ever been up close to. But that's far from the worst logging accident that I have been in the neighborhood of or been aware of. As far as construction accidents, cuts, skill saw cuts, cut off finger, um, lots of nail shots. But one particular time I was working in Wyoming. We lived there five years on this building for, I think, a K&T oil field service. I don't remember the name of the outfit, but there was a high roof and it was frosty and cold outside in a great room. And it was 22 feet from the peak of this kind of rotunda down to a slab floor, concrete slab. And there were a bunch of young guys up there roofing. And I think one or two of them were probably stoned or at least were thinking about getting stoned when they got off work. They were that type. And all of a sudden I heard this yell and I looked over in time to see this young guy. He fell through a skylight. The, the sky, skylights were two feet by four feet. And I don't know how you fall through a hole that's two feet wide in one dimension. How do you get both feet into that hole at the same time? Wow. But down he came and he had a sidewinder saw in his right hand and this trigger pulled and that saw was whining all the way to the ground and he hit the, the slab and the saw hit the slab and mm -hmm. blew up. I mean, it just went to pieces and he jumped up and kind of hobbled around in a little circle and then collapsed mm -hmm. and his pelvis was broken and his hip was blown up and he was a hurting unit. Mm -hmm. And so they hauled him off. But I, I've just been kind of sheltered. I don't know exactly how or why, but I've seen a lot of near misses. I've had a few near misses, but nothing any more serious than that. Nothing really awful. Yeah. It's hard to imagine what it'd be like to, to be on a job site where there's a death. I know this has happened all the time, but a couple of years ago, an electrician friend of mine was on a job and a guy got electrocuted. Mm. And that's the last I heard of it. The The contractor quickly went out of business. Out and, of business. And who who knows what. But just when I heard that, I was kind of reminded, oh my gosh, accidents happen. They do. And they, ha they used to happen a lot more. They still happen a lot. Yeah. The comments on the channel. I, I have read now accounts, firsthand eyewitness accounts of things that I have never seen and some I've never even thought of. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's just yeah. a moment's inattention, just just for a split second, you know, under good, safe working conditions, just yep. making a 
bad assumption or not thinking. It's just, it's amazing how quick things happen. So, yeah, you know, I just last week, I came close to losing my bride because she pulled out into an intersection without looking to the right first mm -hmm. to check. And somebody would blasted through there on a red light, you know, yeah. hadn't even taken their foot off the gas in a 45 mile an hour speed zone. Yeah. Just right by the bumper on her car. And it's the same way on a job site. Things happen in a moment. Yeah. And uh, sometimes with, you know, those consequences. Good question. Well, thanks to everyone who submitted a question. If you would like to include a question for the next episode like this, do that on our website at essentialcraftsman.com slash podcast. We may not include all the questions. There's a lot of them that we just may not have a good answer to, and or maybe we'll think about it. But if it's a qu good question and we feel like we have something to say, we will give it our best shot. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.